Conversations on Changing the World, a podcast devoted to women's issues and creating change from a distinctly Midwest perspective. I'm Martha Kovach, sociologist, producer, and your host. I'm here today with my co-host, Doug Jones. We're excited today to be talking with Judge Melody Stewart. Judge Stewart sits on the 8th District of the Ohio Court of Appeals. She's currently running for the position of justice on the Ohio Supreme Court. If elected, Judge Stewart will be the first African-American woman elected to the highest court in Ohio. She would also be one of only two women of color to sit on Supreme Courts in seven Midwest states, the other being Natalie Hudson of Minnesota. Our guest today is Judge Melody Stewart. She serves as judge in the 8th District of the Ohio Court of Appeals and is currently a candidate for the Ohio State Supreme Court. Welcome, Melody. We're very excited to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. First of all, we want to begin by hearing how you got to this place now of running for the state's highest court. You are as native Ohioan as it gets, right? You're, you're a born and bred Buckeye. Absolutely. You've spent most of your life in the Cleveland area. Correct. I, I am a native Ohioan, as you said. I was born and raised in Cleveland, uh, in the Cleveland area, greater Cleveland area, so I have lived most of my life in Cuyahoga County. But I did live for a while in Cincinnati, in Hamilton County, and in Toledo, in Lucas County. Did my undergraduate work at the College Conservatory of Music at the mm-hmm. University of Cincinnati. As I often tell people, because with a name like Melody, what else did I study <laughs> in college? And then I went to law school in Cleveland. And after being a lawyer and doing law, different, having different careers in law for a while, went back and got my doctorate at Case Western Reserve Mandel School of Applied Social Sciences. You are an extraordinarily well-educated woman. <laughs> it's very clear. Lifelong learner. Uh, oh, yes, I understand that. When you think back on your early experiences in life, on your childhood, what were the lessons that you can remember that prepared you to be on the state's highest court? The number one thing I think, I learned so much from my mother who... Ironically, if she were still living, would have celebrated her 96th birthday yesterday. (laughs) But she's been gone now for about 18 years. But she always taught me to leave a place better off when I when I leave it than when it was than how it was when I got there. And that's for everything, every any place I work. And so that's always been instilled in me. And and I think the example was we rented we lived um, in rental properties and apartments all of my childhood all of my life 
the first home I've lived in. It's the first home I purchased. So you didn't, there wasn't a lot of money. Then. There was not, no. My mother, I, I later found out that I grew up in a disadvantaged home according to <laughs> what they say, yeah. whoever the they is. But I clearly didn't know that um, as I was growing up. So we lived in apartments, and when we were moving, and every time the neighborhood would begin to get a little seedy, or and as my mother says, it says an environment I didn't want you to live in, uh, we would we would move, and so we would get the apartment ready to move out, and we'd clean it, and and I remember saying to my mother one time, "This looks better than it did when we moved in," and that's where I got the line because you always leave a place better off than it was before. And you she said it. to you, "Absolutely right. We're going to leave it in better condition." That's right, and so it's it's just stayed with me even when I rented when I was in law school and different places I rented. I remember one landlord coming in and just handing me my deposit and I said, aren't you going to check? And she said, I already know that it probably looks better than it did when you, when you moved in here. Did, so that was um, an early lesson. Was it just you and your mother? Technically, yes. I mean, I have, I, I, I strange because I have four siblings, but I did grow up an only child. And, and that's strange in that I have my mother... I have an older sister who was also my mother's daughter through my mother's first marriage, but we're 18 and a half years apart oh, in age. Yeah. So she was leaving the house kind of when I was born. And then I have three other siblings who are my father's children, and they grew up with my father and their mother in their home. So it was my mother and I for my, my entire life. So, so even though they're your siblings, they didn't really have that much of a, a, an effect on you growing up. You grew up more as an only I grew child. I only child, absolutely. I have childhood friends who I know more as siblings than my yeah. actual siblings, who, who I've known all my life from the time we've been reared and, as opposed to uh, my siblings. But I'm very fortunate to have wonderful siblings. Uh, two lived nearby me in Cleveland. One was in California. One lives in Geauga County. And I bet they're excited for you now. No, my brother is a walking billboard. Actually, <laughs> as I, any good brother would be. I have, um, and he's got his own life. I mean, he's a dentist. He has a full-time dental practice. But people will stop me when I'm home and said, "Oh, I saw your brother wearing your Elect Melody Stewart sign. He wears it everywhere he goes." I said, "That's my brother." So he's a dentist, and I read that your you, your sister is an attorney. My older sister, it really, she's a she has a law degree. We'll put it that way. She <laughs> hasn't practiced in many many years. She was in law school, and I was in high school. And she did have a career as a as a, a trust officer for then Cleveland Trust Bank, which has gone through different iterations since uh, it was Cleveland Trust. And she was assistant county prosecutor for a while, but then wow. she, she got married and had children. And so she has uh, gone away from practicing law and has used her law degree in, in other different capacities. But her, her husband, my brother-in-law, it was a surgeon who now runs a healthcare management company. Wow. Well, I mean, I'm really struck by for not coming from a whole lot of money. You all managed to turn out quite well and well-educated. Well, and, and it is interesting because all of my I, my nieces and nephews, who I adore, my, my siblings' children, obviously, all of my siblings, all of us have at least two degrees. And I, and I tease my siblings. I tell their children, I said, see, your parents only have two degrees. I have three. They're slackers. <laughs> <laughs> I win. <laughs> I win, exactly. But they, they've done well, too. All the adult children have finished schools, and actually several of them have uh, gone on and gotten master's degrees, too. When you were growing up and, and moving around that much, 
do you remember um, thinking about the law then, either as a career choice or just as a kind of the way I think we all grow up with the sense of the law and policing and Marty, it's so interesting you asked me that because as a child, I never thought about being really? a lawyer. And I have colleagues who say to me, I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I always knew I wanted to be a judge. And my brother always knew he wanted to be a dentist from the time he was 10 years old, which is amazing to me. Wow. Because oftentimes, I mean, I still think now I'm trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up sometimes. Mm -hmm. But no, I didn't think of law at all. And... Again, my sister was in law school when I was in high school, and she worked and went to law school. And I was a little angry about that because I thought she should have been spending time bonding with me, of course. But she was working and in school most of the time. And quite frankly, even when I broached the conversation or consideration of law school, I went to her and asked her opinion. Well, you know, I'm thinking about law school. What do you, what do you think? She told me, I wouldn't do it if I were you. Did she ironically. ever say why not? Um, I, she probably did. It escapes me, but I know I applied the next week or the next day. So <laughs> whatever it was, it wasn't compelling enough. <laughs> or maybe her evaluation of it was yeah. final and said you needed maybe to exactly apply. It. Exactly. So you went to Cleveland Public Schools. Mm -hmm. Cleveland Public and Cleveland Catholic Schools. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I, I read also you went to the uh, music school. I did. I went to the my the entire secondary education. I was a student from at the Cleveland Music School settlement from the time I was six to the time I was eighteen. Wow. So you are trained in classical piano, classical guitar. Correct. More so piano. Guitar would scare some people off. I think. <laughs> so obviously, music was your first love. Mm -hmm. And, and probably still is. Okay. Well, what happened to shift your focus from music to law? I like to tell people I loved it too much to try to make a living doing it. Oh, yeah. it, it, it was, I was, well, I was not a performance major, so okay. I only practiced four hours a day as opposed to the six to seven hours a day that performance majors practice. I had to, of course, play, and I accompanied uh, singers and, and musicians, and I taught for a while, and I've played weddings, and I've done recitals. Performance anxiety would get to me. I'm, I'm a perfectionist, and if I couldn't get it just right, I was sometimes practice so long the tips of my fingers would be raw and then I didn't necessarily enjoy performing I enjoyed the background I enjoyed listening I enjoyed um, coaching and helping other people uh, and so and then I was just more I was a theory and composition major okay, so I was yeah. more interested in that and and how chords work and you know music is made and and so that was just more appealing to me than performing I'd rather compose something and hear it perform than to perform it myself well in fact we were having a, a pre-production meeting for this interview mm. uh, yesterday and one of the things we talked about was I think people see or can see music as sort of the ultimate in, in creativity, personal expression, and in, in, in if you believe in a left brain, right brain spectrum, it's sort of, I think people can see it as far away from law in terms of that continuum as it gets, even though we know that music, you know, to 
to do it is there's takes a, a lot there's of a little, discipline. There's a little bit of intellect involved yes, in learning. Yes, sure. and music composition, certainly. But, but in terms of, I think, what drives people is that individual creativity that is... And at first blush, the the law does not represent those things. Well, you're you're right, at least for me personally. And I don't think I've ever played the piano as much post undergraduate school as I did in law school. And for me, it was the right brain left brain balance. I could uh -huh. study for hours, and then I'd get up and I'd play the piano for hours, or I'd compose something, and then I was fresh to go back and study law. Do, do law study. So for me, it was the ultimate in balance. And whether it actually physiologically happened in my brain or whether it was a, my imagination or my perception, the shifting back and forth did wonders for me in law school. And I remember my first day of law school and I thought, I am so out of my league here because there are people here who are governmental majors mm -hmm. or political science major, pre-law majors. Here I am with a music degree in law school. What am, you know, what am I doing here? And I very quickly found that, particularly my, my training, the detail-oriented work of orchestration and score reading and 16th century counterpoint and 18th century counterpoint. Yeah. The structure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the detailed analysis helped me... Um, to, to flush out some of the nuances. And I think that also, with having been a law professor and taught law, I'm probably one of the better, if not the best, uh, proofreaders in, in my court by way of the judges okay, in, yeah, in, in yeah. the way things flow, the way they sound, the way they read, mistakes. I can, find, I can see the spaces, an extra space between words, and you know, those sort of things. So I quickly discovered that, you know, hey, being a music major in law school, isn't bad at all. And when I was an assistant dean for admissions for law school, I would tell students that when I would recruit them for law school, or they say, I should be a political science major, right? I said, you should study what you want to study in undergraduate school so you'll get good grades. And then worry about law school. And learn the discipline required to apply Absolutely right. yourself. Absolutely right. As a writer, I've always found good writing is very musical. Hmm. I agree. It's got to sound beautiful when you read it aloud, even if you're only reading it to yourself. The better the flow, the better the impact. Mm -hmm. and, and I would think also the emphasis you place on uh, perfectionism also really comes out in terms of the decisions that you write. Hopefully. Um, that you want that precision. I don't know if the losing parties about. feel that way, but... <laughs> and my son just graduated from law school. Oh. And it was always a point of focus to make certain he had some kind of activity that was not the law, so he could stay sane, so he didn't burn out. And you talk about going back and being refreshed after playing. Yeah, I, I get that. That's very important. It's important. It is. Particularly in law school, but it's important in life, in life. overall. Yeah, I think today people would just call that meditation. You know, there's such an emphasis I tried to do that, too. Do you as well? When I could in law school, do, yeah. do you find you, turn, you still turn to music? I do. do, I, do that I, I can, particularly on the campaign trail, if I'm driving back from an event from another county late at night, I tend to listen to audiobooks more so during the day when I'm going uh, certain places. Um, I always tell people my erudition has increased exponentially <laughs> being on the campaign trail listening to audiobooks, and I enjoy those. But in the evening, 
when I'm coming back, particularly late at night from an event, midnight, one in the morning, without question, it's music, and and it's and I have certain playlists on my on my iPod and or on my phone, whichever one I'm listening to. The amount of music I have will get me right to the garage of my house, and sometimes I don't even know how I got there. Is it all classical? No, not all of it. I've got everything. It, it, so it really depends. Uh, sometimes if I have classical music at one thirty in the morning, that might not be safe for right. people right. out there. Um, so it's everything. It's classical. It's jazz. It's pop. It's modern. It's R&B. It's country western. It's a little... Um, it's just it's a an eclectic mixture, and I even have a playlist that has that eclectic mixture, so that I'm always surprised at what comes up. Yeah, I would. I know when I was, um, particularly when I was teaching graduate students, and after being, you know, in seminars all day long, mm-hmm. that I would be driving home at ten o'clock at night, and I couldn't take any more words. My, e- even song words? So even you even hear, song words. I, I had to have just instrumental yeah. because my brain was just so saturated because words mean ideas and my brain just needed to flow in a direction that was not about ideas. I just had to yeah, dial down the words because <laughs> it was too much. And I get that. There are times when I went just instrumental, absolutely. Well, and can you talk about what happened where finally you became a judge? I ran initially for the Court of Appeals in 2000, and it was 99-2000. The night of my first fundraiser, my mother passed away that night. So she never got to vote for me. It was really sad back then, too. You could only have absentee ballots when uh, you couldn't get to the polls. And she was in a nursing home, and so we had to send her absentee ballot back. You know, obviously, some of, there's no fraudulent voting. Um, and I was a long shot. I... I, I was not then and am not now a politician. And so it's a political process. That was unknown. And and I ran right for the Court of Appeals because having been in law academe, I thought my background and talents were better suited for the appellate court as opposed to the trial court. When you do that, as a t- an attorney going right to the Court of Appeals, you're oftentimes going to have trial court judges who are looking to ascend to the appellate court running against you. And most voters don't know the difference between the Common Pleas Court or the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court. And so there were people who ran against me who had been on the ballot multiple times. Their names had been on the ballot multiple mm-hmm. times. So I lost in the primary in 2000, lost in the primary in 2002. And I've never run against anyone to take their seat. I've always run for an open seat. And so um, another seat became open in 2006. Interesting, in that primary, I didn't have a, a prior uh, uh, a trial court judge running in that race. It was two other attorneys and me, two male attorneys who lived on the west side of Cleveland who split the vote, and I came right up through the middle. And, so that, and, and that was my final time running for the Court of Appeals because I figured if I didn't make it on that third time that it probably wasn't meant to be, and it was, I was supposed to do something else. So I've since then won re-election twice, unopposed, mm-hmm. most recently in 2016. And so I guess that leads into or begs the question, why the Court of Appe- why yeah. the Ohio Supreme Court now in 2018? Again, an open seat uh, mm-hmm. with the uh, re- early retirement of Bill O'Neill. Uh, there were two open seats in the court this year. I thought that this would be an opportunity. I guess I feel that 
I've had the honor of being educated in some of the best colleges and universities our state has to offer. I've had a wonderful legal career, practicing law as a civil defense litigator, being a law professor, and being a judge. The law profession owes me absolutely nothing. <laughs> if anything, I owe the legal profession. While I can still think, and, and, and gaining a, a fairly good reputation as an appellate court judge, I thought, while I am still sound in mind and heart, I should see if I'm able to take those characteristics and those qualities in my public service that I've done in Cuyahoga County and be able to implement that statewide. I take a great deal of pride in being a good public servant. I've worked in the public sector, I've worked in the private sector, and I don't work any differently. I'm a good steward of fiscal resources, um, I'm efficient, and the case that's most important to me is the case that's in front of me mm -hmm. at that particular time. All parties and every party deserves my undivided attention in figuring out the right answer to resolve the, the matter in front of me. And I tell people, often tell people too, when I walk into my courthouse, which is the beautiful old courthouse at Lakeside Avenue in, in Cleveland, um, in front of the Brown Stadium, also known as the House of Sorrows. Among other things. I walk into that building, and I'm all when I walk in that building. And if I see a piece of paper on the floor of that building, I pick it up. Because, one, the public shouldn't have to come into a crappy-looking public building, right. for one. Right. And just, just you know, the, the reverence of the building. And I often see things, again, going back to hearing my mother, you leave things better off than they were before you got there. There's so many things that I see that can be implemented to make our courts more productive, more efficient. Can you elaborate on that? What it is about your background your experience at home with your mother, your very broad educational background, all the varied legal experience you have. How, do, how does that influence the way you approach your work as a judge? Well, and a lot of it, believe it or not, it is common, some things are common sense things. And, and even when and I worked- law. Well, yeah, Absolutely, I know, don't be surprised. Um, and even when I worked at the healthcare management company and I stayed there, continued to work there at the law school, you know, I, I was the office manager. I was in administration there. And being in administration in law school at, at Case Western's law school and at Cleveland Marshall's law school, there are things that you would see that would make the job more efficient and that would make it more effective and that you make it work for. So, for instance, there are some parties who have to wait, oh, let's say a year or more for a trial court to rule on a motion. That just doesn't make mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, what's the remedy? to get the judge to rule sooner. Okay. Well, there is a legal remedy. That person, if he or she is representing himself or herself pro se, or the lawyer, can file a writ in a higher court. So if it's a trial court, they can file a writ in the Court of Appeals that says, hey, this motion has been pending in the trial court for over a year. Can you please make the judge rule on it? And I would venture to say that writ would likely be granted because uh, waiting for a year to have a motion. Now, court can't say how it should be granted, right. just that it should be granted, yeah. or that it should be ruled upon, I'm sorry, not granted, uh, granted or denied. So you can issue a, a writ that says trial court immediately rule on that decision. Well, you've got the, the personal element to it. A judge doesn't want to make, a, an attorney doesn't want to make a judge mad or, mm -hmm. or have the court be less inclined to consider things for his or her client, which shouldn't be, but judges are human. And so you don't want to 
prod or push the court too much. If there's something in place that says you've got to have these things ruled on within this particular period of time, then the judges have to abide by it. And if they don't abide by it, there's a record that the Supreme Court keeps of cases that are pending after 30 days and after 60 days. And, and so those are the things that even if the court doesn't oversee more so or that the public has access to. And then that might be a determining factor that people use in deciding if they're going to elect or re-elect someone. Um, so, so those, and if there's no accountability once we get into office, then there's, I think that's problematic. There are plenty of elected officials at the judicial level and other levels that don't need to be held accountable to do their jobs effectively and efficiently. But there are some who do, and we should have that in place for those who do. On your website, you use the words describing yourself as tough, insightful, and fair. So given what you've said about yourself, what does it mean for a Supreme Court justice to be tough, insightful, and fair? What it doesn't mean is disrespectful at any time. It means tough as in I'm usually so prepared when I go out to listen to an oral argument that a lawyer should not try to tell a panel that I'm sitting on at the Court of Appeals level or the Supreme Court level, and I have sat on the Supreme Court by assignment yes. several times, that a case stands for a proposition that it doesn't stand for. Because I will say, that's not what that case says. So you're the one who pulls out the bullshit flag. Well, in other words, I won't allow someone to get away with um, saying there's a propositional law that really doesn't say what it says, and not knowing the case law that is in favor of his or her client and not bringing it to our attention. Right. And, and that's, so that's what I mean by, by tough. Again, not disrespectful, not mean-spirited in any way. And then, depending on the panel, because we have to you know, agree upon certain things, it's some things that we might mention in an opinion. I can recall a time where we said in a written opinion that we were disappointed at the lack of preparation of both sides for such a very important issue. And, and I think the, the, the clients and the people and the public deserve that. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. I'm curious about um, your use of the term insightful. Or, or my campaign committee's use of the term. <laughs> but, well, well, I'm sure say, that... It's uh, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll own it. You'll own that. Insightful in that I think my social science background... Uh, okay, that's... I was... <laughs> ...helps me to look at issues before me and whether it's... A, a statute that's before me or the way the trial court decided and look at how once we issue a decision it becomes a law for our county for all issues that are similarly situated and so we have to look at was there some unintended consequences of a particular law or particular ruling or particular holding and how does this extrapolate to the greater Right, you know, the greater public, when we decide a case of the appellate court, it resolves that case in conflict or that case in controversy, which the Supreme Court doesn't really do. The Supreme Court does not adjudicate or does not resolve cases in controversy or cases at, at issue. Prime example, I had a case once where the majority of my panel, two of the members of the court, decided that a certain provision in an automobile insurance policy meant 
that someone who paid for uninsured and underinsured motor coverage, as we do with our insurance, can't prevail against their insurance company for personal injury when they were broadsided by a police car responding to an emergency call. In Ohio, under statute, if an emergency vehicle, police, fire, or EMS is responding to an emergency and you're in an automobile accident and it is their fault, mm -hmm. you can't recover. You can't recover money damages. Gee. That's political subdivision immunity. It, it, it's we can go hours to talk about why that is, but but it is in the in the instances of an automobile accident or if it's the car is negligently driven, because these responders have to get to emergency calls in a fairly you know they're quick, doing their they're job doing their job fashion, yeah. then. And, and it is the fault of the truck of the uh, fire truck driver or the, the police officer or the EMS driver. You can't recover against the city for that. So that's why we have uninsured, underinsured motorist policies. So that okay. protects us against people for whom we cannot recover. And there was a case that came before us where I think some creative person on the insurance company part hmm. said, well, but this provision says you can only recover from your insurance company if you're legally entitled to recover from the negligent tort fees. Oh. And so the trial court said, well, I guess that means you can't recover. And my, two of my panel members affirmed that. And I said, do you understand the implications of this? That means everybody across the state of Ohio who pays for underinsured and underinsured motorist coverage can get hit by a police cruiser or an EMS truck or something, they, and they can't they can't be insured. And the and the the, the lady and the and small child in her car were, were injured, um, suffered some pretty serious injuries in that case. So now you can't recover against the city, and you can't recover against your your automobile insurance policy. Yeah, what do you do? That's loony. So I wrote a dissenting opinion yeah. that said that decision was quite frankly, wrong and mm -hmm. erroneous, and the Supreme Court reversed it and used part of my dissent. Uh, and gotcha. that was a good day for you. That, that was a good day for drivers in the state yes, of Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I have to say to you, I really don't, it's not personal to me. It, and I have no doubt that my colleagues, just like, just like I do, my colleagues do the best they can with the resources they have, and they, mm -hmm. they believe, and there was a case where we just differed on what the case meant and what the case said, the case that they relied upon. And so the fact that the decision, the Supreme Court reversed citing the way I went, it really wasn't personal for me, but I was glad that they did because I just thought it would have had a, a large negative impact on our insurance, automobile insurance in the state of Ohio. Did you feel like your mother was saying, at a girl? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't on that particular case, but uh, there are times when I think when she would smile if, if she were alive and I'd, I would tell her about uh, certain cases, she would smile. And, you know, my mother was, wasn't a woman of a lot of words. She really uh, led by example for my life. I mean, she instilled in me the love of the arts and the love of uh, musical theater. And, and I mean, I think I was the only kid in my neighborhood who had a piano. And yeah. I grew up on the east side of Cleveland in an area that's now known as Cleveland Clinic, Ohio. Um, but they, <laughs> yeah, they, they, weren't, well. they weren't so expansive back <laughs> in my day. And um, she was, my mother was just, was always proud uh, of, of our accomplishments and the, the things we did. And so... She would probably, she's probably smiling. 
Can you tell us about the most difficult case you ever had? And here, you know, difficult however you want to define that. What was for you the toughest? The absolute toughest case I think I had was a case involving a post-conviction relief motion. So someone who had been found guilty of committing a murder and was convicted and who had an appeal and lost the appeal. This was a man convicted for the murder of his girlfriend and, uh, um, and sentenced to a very long time in prison. After about 18 years, the Innocence Project worked on his case and the victim was strangled. And so the Innocence Project said, hey, can we test? And by the way, the evidence that the jury had at the first case was that this woman was, she was found naked in her closet, strangled to death and, and beaten badly. And there was semen found on her, but it wasn't the defendant's. Oh. But he was still convicted because he was her boyfriend. Um, so there was a post-conviction relief motion, a motion filed after conviction and after the appeal saying, hey, DNA testing technology is advanced. Can we see if there's any fingernail scrapings that's still in the lab? Can we test those? Because if we test them and it's not the defendant, yeah. it will exonerate him. It yep. will prove his innocence. Because once you're convicted, once you've been found guilty, you have to prove then that you are innocent right. for exoneration. And so the trial court said, you know, we're going to allow it because we don't know if there's any tissue or any scrapings under there. But if they are, and it's not you, it will prove your innocence. It will exonerate you. So the testing happened, and it came back, and it wasn't him. And so the lawyers filed motion after motion after motion for the judge to grant a new trial to let the defendant go. And when the court finally ruled on the motion, the court denied it, saying, well, the jury heard that the DNA from the semen didn't match you and they convicted you anyway, so there's nothing here that's new that shows um, your, your um, innocence. So it came to us on appeal on that issue, whether the trial court erred in not granting that post-conviction relief motion after the DNA testing came back. Not only was it not the defendant, it matched the semen. Uh, and yeah. so the trial court denied it, came to us on appeal, it was as clear as day to me that the trial court erred in sure. not granting mm -hmm. it, but two of my colleagues didn't see it that way. And so in the Court of Appeals, your ruling is 3-0 or 2-1, majority wins. And so that opinion affirmed the trial court. I was so, I was just taken aback by it, so I wrote a dissenting opinion that was longer than the majority opinion, actually. And uh, saying, pointing out all the holes in the case, all, from the back from the trial court days, back in the what the wrong facts that were stated in the in the direct appeal case, the parts of the record that it, it was just it, it it was so it was clear to me that he should have never been convicted. Of course, you never know whether anybody's guilty or innocent of a crime unless you're there yourself. But the evidence clearly said he should not have been convicted, and then the post conviction evidence to me, clearly demonstrated that he should have been exonerated. And so we had a battle, and that was the most unfortunate altercations I have ever had with colleagues on that case. But I, I believed that they were wrong, and I believed that they hadn't given the case as much attention as I thought they should have given, or that they elevated form over substance. And, and, and I have a great deal of respect for my colleagues, I really do, and I truly believe that every one of my colleagues, um, past and present, um, does his or her level best. But for that particular case, 
it became personal. And so I wrote a dissenting opinion in that case, and then I had to let the case go. Interestingly enough, where the crime occurred was a building that I had to pass every Sunday going to church. I passed the building every Sunday. It was an old neighborhood that I used to live in, and I passed the building every Sunday. And I would think about the victim who left two children behind, um, and it was her young teenage daughter who discovered her body. And I think about, and I thought about the defendant who I truly believe was sitting in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But after you do your part as a judge, you have to let it go. And I would just occasionally say a prayer for them, you know, hope the children are doing well, you know, hope, hope he perseveres. And last year, I think, one of my colleagues who's on that case uh, sent me an email and said, uh, it said King case. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So I called my clerk and said, you know, Judge so-and-so brought this up. I have no idea what he's talking about. So he said, well, let me look and do some research on it. And it just came out in the newspaper where the particular defendant in that case, uh, the Ohio Innocence Project, kept on his case. And the new prosecutor in Cuyahoga County had a conviction integrity unit, and they looked at his conviction, and they looked at the dissenting opinion, and they decided to drop the charges, and he was exonerated. So after 22 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Yeah, good for you. So that was probably, I said to myself, when that happened, if I don't decide another case for the rest of my life, that one is worth being a judge. So you simply could not abide a person who was obviously innocent being put in prison. Right. And let's say, I won't say obviously innocent in that I wasn't there, but who obviously should not have been found guilty exactly. based on the yes. evidence. Yes. yes. And meanwhile, the if you presume that man is innocent and truly innocent, meanwhile, the actual perpetrator... That's exactly right. Someone once Walk said free. to me, "Yeah, but if you're a jury member, you wanna you wanna be careful. You rather err on the side of you know mm. not letting a guilty man go free than you know having somebody wrongfully convicted. So when you mm. wrongfully convict someone, you do both. You you right. let the guilty person right. go free. Right. Now, isn't that exactly the opposite of how I had always understood we were supposed to approach you know a trial, guilt or innocence? That you would rather err on the side of letting a guilty person go than put an innocent person in jail. Well, that's a whole other, I guess, discussion of our psychology and our jury system, particularly if you have a criminal defendant who has a history yeah. of mm -hmm. yeah. committing crimes. Mm -hmm. I would yeah. imagine for any person, particularly a lay person, it, it, it might be easier to yeah. believe yeah. that they've committed this crime. And so you're supposed to walk in with a presumption of innocence until the state proves you guilty. Sure. But that, I mean, that's even a big issue in Cuyahoga County and some other counties with bail reform. I mean, bail is supposed to to guarantee your attendance to the next court right. yeah. hearing, not to keep you incarcerated till you have hearings. So we have people who are losing jobs and losing their homes because they can't make yeah. bond to get out. Mm -hmm. Another form of debtor's prison. Absolutely. And then let's say, so you've lost everything, you get tried, you get acquitted, and so your life is supposed to go back to normal when you've been in, in jail for, and a lot yeah. of jails are worse than prisons. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break now, and we'll be back with more conversation with Judge Melody Stewart. What they tell us, how they compel us, I know what it's like to wonder what is true. In the speeches, the ignorant preachers, I know what it's like to be with. 
love to hear from you. If you have feedback, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, email us at voices at heartlandwoman.com. here having a wonderful discussion with Judge Melody Stewart, who is currently a candidate for the Ohio State Supreme Court. And I'd like to talk to you about the Supreme Court. What does it do? What does it not do? How should the general public, people who are going to go and vote, how should they understand uh, what it's like? I presume if they've had experience with the court, it was either criminal or civil. So what is the Supreme Court uh, do you think people have common misconceptions about it? So could you kind of talk about that? How is how does the, fit, yeah, what how does the Supreme Court do and how does it fit into the overall system? The Ohio Supreme Court is the highest level of our state judiciary. It's comprised of a chief justice and six associate justices. It is not a court that decides cases in controversy. With rare exception, like death penalty cases and, and, and some other um, constitutional issues, it does not have to hear an appeal from the courts of appeals. If there is a conflict amongst appellate districts on a particular issue of law, the Supreme Court takes that case and hears it so that it resolves the conflict, so that the law is uniform across the state. And the Ohio Supreme Court decides cases of great importance to the state. So, for instance, at the appellate court level, where I am, you can appeal anything from a traffic ticket determination, termination of parental rights, a criminal conviction, juvenile delinquency adjudication, um, a property settlement from a divorce, a planning and zoning decision. Do you hear yeah. all those kinds all of those cases? Things. Okay. Everything. Wow. Asbestos cases, you name it. Okay. You know, if it can come out of one of the municipal courts or one of the county courts, any of the divisions, you have an appeal as a matter of right to the appellate courts if you believe there's been some error at the trial court level. And, you I, don't. and I would imagine something about how broad your background was would give you some particular insights into the substance of what you're making well, a judgment. It, it did in a lot of ways. I mean, I was a member and a chair of a planning of zoning a board of planning and zoning in the city of Euclid. And in, in law school, I taught criminal law and I taught criminal procedure and I taught ethics and professional responsibility. And so I, and I did, when I was a litigator, I did employment litigation and personal injury and tort litigation. So I, I have a broad background. However, the appellate court, it never ceases to amaze me where there will be an issue that comes before us where we don't have a, when I say we, I mean my staff, my law clerks and I, we don't necessarily have any, uh, a, a personal background about it. And so then we have to bone up on it. So we've become uh, smarter or more informed about um, uh, construction contracts and asbestos litigation and, and those sort of issues. So the Supreme Court then, of course, it decides those cases. And the Supreme Court is more, of course, than just the court. It has various departments and divisions. It has the Judicial College, which is responsible for the education of the judges across the state. It has various committees and assignments that it oversees. I'm, I'm chair of the Capital Case Attorney Fee Council for the state of Ohio, comprised of five appellate court judges. And I'm the chair of that group. 
the Chief Justice will appoint various judges at the trial court level and the Court of Appeals level to serve on different committees, um, reform committees, uh, uh, death penalty task force, and looking at ways for in, in different, in particular avenues of our legal system. And and if you haven't been at the at the uh, Moyer Justice Center in, in downtown Columbus, it's a great place to, to go visit and, and has a museum at the bottom and, and has some a lot of historical information. So it is really more than just assigning cases, but once the Supreme Court decides a case, that's the law for the state of Ohio. So directly or indirectly, it impacts everyone. Okay. Now, is the Supreme Court kind of a neutral arbiter? I mean, mechanically apply the letter of the law to the facts of a case, or, uh, or do individual justices, their, their personal judgments, do, do, does that influence, you know, what role does that play? Does that influence what happens? And is there a direction, this is where I'm going with this, is there a direction to the court today? And what about that? Well, I, I think the judiciary is no different from any other profession in that we all bring our backgrounds, our perspectives, our implicit biases, and we all have them, to any and every job. Um, the Supreme Court currently is comprised of individuals who all belong to one political party. I don't think that's good for our court at any level, if, if for if any party, to have a one-party Supreme Court. If for no other reason, I think it's maybe naive at best, maybe insulting at worst, to think that a judiciary at the highest level that's comprised of one political group has the appearance of impartiality. Right. So, so I th I think that's that's problematic in and of itself. But you know, we, every judge in the state takes an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the sure. Constitution of the sure. Ohio. And so, you know, do we come to a set of facts in the case differently? I imagine we do to some degree. We have to apply the law as written. If the legislature has acted and there's a law that's plain and unambiguous, you're to apply it. We apply it. If it's subject to more than one interpretation, then that's where you can have judges' interpretation right. differ. And so the role you're running for, this, there really is a significance to this. There is. I mean, it is, it is important. And I think for a lot of voters, voting for judges, there's a big drop-off when you get to voting for judges because right. after you vote for the president or you vote for the governors or you maybe even vote for your local races, for your council people, your commissioners, you go, oh, the, all these judicial races, there's common pleas, juvenile division, there's general division, there's court of appeals, there's Supreme Court. Too many judges, I don't know who they are, I'm just going to skip them. Well, there, that, that, that reason doesn't make sense as much anymore because there are too many tools out there that can help people decide who the judges are, whether they're qualified, what's their rating. The major newspapers do endorsements. The bar associations do endorsements. There's a, a website called Judicial Votes Count, which don't recommend one way or the other, but just lists the credentials of judges. So there, is, there are some easy ways to find out a little bit more about the people who are running for judge. And... Um, that can help you make some decision. Granted, you don't want to be in a court if you don't have to as a party or even as a juror. Right. But who your judges are, you should care about. The voters should care about. If you're elected, I'd love to say when you're elected. <laughs> we have to say if you're elected, you will be the first African-American woman elected to the highest court in Ohio. That's correct. Other African-American women, including yourself, have served on the court, but they were appointed, and you and it was, for you, a very temporary 
fill-in position. Right. right. Well, uh, for me, I, I was never appointed. Well, I was assigned, assigned. Right, okay. to sit as a visiting judge okay. on the court. And, and you're right, Yvette McGee Brown was yeah. appointed to the court by, by former Governor Strickland yeah. and, and then was not retained in her election. And so, yes, if elected, I would be the first African-American female elected to the court. Ironically, if elected too, I would be the first African, I believe, the first African-American elected to any statewide position, male or female, any position ever in our, in our state, at least in recent times. My word. Is that, you know, when I step back, on, on one hand, we can go, we know how deeply racism structurally in particular runs in this country, so that shouldn't be surprising. But on the other hand, I think sometimes it's 2018 and we're still here. Yeah. We're still having to have these discussions. We we are and we, and we still do. However... I don't, and, and again, the fact that I would be the first elected clearly isn't why I'm running. Right. The historical significance isn't lost on me, and, and I appreciate the, the, the impact of that. However, it, it crisscrossing the state, whether I'm in southwestern Ohio, northeastern Ohio, or central Ohio, I'm really finding that we are really more alike than we are unalike. Absolutely. We, we all want the same thing. We all want good government. And so I don't even run on the first on the platform of, hey, I would be the first African-American woman elected. I, I don't run on that platform. If you see me, you'll see that I'm an African-American female. Yeah. And, and that in and of itself is, is, is apparent. However, I don't expect anyone, even the African-American voter, to vote for me because of that, which is why I keep putting out my credentials and why I'm running. I was in Auglaize County recently, and there was a woman who approached me after I finished talking. She said to me, she says, you know, I'm 85 years old, and I've been in politics for most of my life, and you are the most qualified, well-spoken candidate I have ever heard in my life, and I'm going to tell everybody to vote for you. I wish I had a camera. That's why we invited you here. Oh, well, <laughs> because I met you and I heard you speak and I had a conversation with you. I had precisely the same wow. kind of well, uh, impression. Wow. said immediately. That's why. We have to talk. And so I, there will be people who may not vote for me because of the way I look or because of who I am, and there might be people who vote for me just yeah. because of that too. Yeah. Right. And so, so there, there are those groups. However, like you've pointed out, and like the the woman in in Auglaize County pointed out. I say what I stand for, and I say what I'll do, and I say why I want to run for the office. And I think if that helps improve our judiciary across the state, then everyone benefits. Because if I get there, when I get there, I will be Supreme Court Justice for the entire state of Ohio. For rural Ohio, for urban Ohio, black, Latina, Asian, Republican, Democrat, independents, everybody. And so their cases will be the most important case in front of me. Well, and I had I, I get, had wanted to ask you in light of that, why would demographic diversity such and again immediately we think of race and gender, why would those be or the lack thereof of that sure. diversity? Why would that why be important? important to something like the Supreme Court? It's important, I think, in several respects. Again. We have different backgrounds and we have different perspectives. Um, And I think the more perspectives you have at the highest level of your judiciary, the better informed you are collectively as a group about different things. And we we all are not all-knowing. 
we don't have all the information. Right. We don't have all the perspectives. And so that's important that way too. Secondly, for all the children who in the state who might look like me, who grew up in the same neighborhood I grew up in, who had the same background as I had, who may not have even thought they could go to college or law school, let alone become a judge and then get to the highest level of our judiciary, seeing me there says to them, you can. And it's, it would be very similar to the election of President Obama, who, quite frankly, I'm sure a lot of us thought we'd never see in our lifetime. Right. Um, but who a person who connected with individuals enough, you know, despite the many detractors that he still had, whether they were for legitimate reasons or illegitimate reasons, who connected with enough people who thought that um, this person would be a good president and do the job he says he's going to do. I'm hoping that when people hear why I'm running and what I hope to bring to the Supreme Court, that that resonates with them first and foremost. It sounds like when you're going through just your daily life, mm-hmm. being a judge, yes. you never lose a sense of that still you're a role model just by the fact of your being there. I have to. There's certain expectation I know that goes with being, one, an elected official, two, being a lawyer, and three, being a judge. Mm-hmm. There are certain things that uh, I, I think... Y- you hold your elected officials and your particularly levels of your, your members of your judiciary in a certain way. And, and whether they should, we should or should not, I don't know. But um, I feel that role. I feel that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's why I still stay active in my community. I still stay active. Um, I accept all invitations for speaking engagements and to do continuing legal education and to talk to college kids and to talk to high school kids and, and just to say, you know, this is really not a foreign concept. It's, right. it's you, 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 you get educated, you find out about things. There's so many things to learn and to know about. Law might not be for you, but at least learn about it and see what it is that you can do with a law degree and, and what lawyers do, and, and you might choose an entirely different pr- pr- profession. But whatever you do, you know, you take pride in doing it, and you do it to the best of your ability. And I think people are surprised when they find out that the people who are in high positions and whatever that is, in, in business or in government, when they find out they're just human beings too, um, that we've become, I think, so distant from our leaders. And I, I know as a child, the things that most profoundly affected me were those close-up encounters of whether they were uh, federal representatives mm-hmm. or judges or whatever, to be able to see that, that they were just human beings too. And Absolutely. that maybe... I could do it. If they could do it, I could do it. Yeah, and again, our implicit biases have us prejudge people. I mean, you know, the, you know people, uh, men, I think, enjoy the, the benefit of certain presumption of, of uh, competency over women. People of color maybe um, have less. People who are in suits have more. People who are in jeans have less. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, people with an accent might have less. You know, we all, are, we, we all have them. They're implicit biases. We all have them. And one of the things I try to do all the time as a judge is check them. Yeah. You have to check against them at, at all times. And, you know, I know I have them, so I have to check against them to be sure that I don't 
particularly favor one argument over another argument. No. One of the things that we've been struck by as we've sort of watched your campaign up to now is that you're in, a, in some ways, a very strange, untenable position. You need to win a semi-partisan election <laughs> to become a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. Um, and that means you have to run a statewide political campaign, uh, and you're all at large, which means you, you've got a campaign in all 88 counties. You've got to be there representing everybody in the state. You right. don't have the luxury of a district. Correct. You have to participate in a partisan primary and do the fundraising and get endorsements and the speeches. And you got to keep your day job while you're doing <laughs> it, right. which is very unusual for yeah. anybody else sure. who's running that kind of campaign. Uh, but the ballot in November in Ohio is considered a nonpartisan ballot. Um, right. No, no, des no right. party designation. Right. And right. the job that you're running for is specifically a non-political job. And as you said, you're a judge. You're not a politician. Correct. But you're going through this strange period that requires you to, you know, really put on a good act as a politician if you're how not do, one. How do you do this? And how do you, do you do that? Do you talk about issues? Do you talk about positions? I don't. I don't. I don't give my personal opinion on anything that could, you know, be law-related, particularly hot topic areas like uh, uh, abortion rights and death penalty. And, mm -hmm. and you know, really, and, and, and not because I try to shy away from those things, but my personal opinion really does not matter. And I gave an example recently to a group of people. I said, let's hypothetically, let's, let's assume that I'm opposed to the death penalty. And I get to the Supreme Court, and death penalty appeals go right to the Supreme Court now. There's an appeal as a matter of right. And let's say everything was fine at the trial court level. There was a fair trial. Um, the mitigation hearing was right. Everything, it got affirmed. I mean, it got, uh, the decision was made for a sentence of death at the trial court level. Well, it gets to the appeals. And again, there's no infirmity and everything is right. Can I say as a Supreme Court justice, well, everything is right, but I'm personally opposed to the death penalty, so I'm going to vote to overturn it. Absolutely not. I can't say that. So it, my, my personal opinion on things are just those, my personal opinion. And they have no impact on how I do my work. So you're focused on the integrity of the system. It, well, it is. And, and, and my, my, my job, I, my standard of review as an appellate court judge now and, and, and as a Supreme Court, my standard of review uh, is set depending on the type of case that it is. And I cannot substitute my judgment for what happened. Again, when it gets to a level of, of a death penalty conviction, that person has either been tried before several trial court judges mm -hmm. or a jury that recommended death. And so for me to then sit on high to say, uh, well, something wasn't done right, or regardless of how heinous the crime was, the state shouldn't be in the business of the death penalty. Well, currently the state of Ohio has the death penalty. So, so whether I agree or disagree with it philosophically is just that, my philosophical difference or my philosophical agreement. So I don't really talk about issues that way. I don't I don't say how I would decide a case because I never know how I'm going to decide a case until I have the facts before me in the applicable law. So what do you think you're going to bring to the court, aside from being a very good proofreader yeah. <laughs> and probably writing very clear decisions? Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, how will you, your election, affect the direction of the court and the people of Ohio? I, I think in several respects. Again, the bringing a background 
bringing a diversity of, of intellect and a diversity of, of knowledge and experience that's currently missing from the court. Um, a, a vote for my opponent would maintain the court as it is. And my opponent is competent. My opponent is certainly qualified. Mm -hmm. But keeping my opponent on the court does not improve the court. So if we're looking to improve our judiciary and we're looking to improve our government, then it doesn't make sense to vote for anybody except me for my election. <laughs> you know, so, that, so that's one thing. But, but second, um, the work ethic that I bring, yeah. the refusal to let the status quo remain when things can be better, when we can serve the people we represent better, the energy to do the work, um, particularly with having you know a chief justice in the court who is looking to be sure that I think when she leaves her position um, as the chief justice in the court, she will leave the court. Um, in an improved condition, building on even the work of the prior Chief Justice before that. Um, it is hopefully an inspiration and role model to law students and younger people. It, it is, it is the, anybody who wants to be able to work with me and come on board to help make our little part of the world here in Ohio a better place. It is, so it is whatever I can do that's before me right now and things that I may not even know. It's knowing that you have a person in the elected position in the Ohio Supreme Court who will work every day to make our judiciary the best it can be. And learning this stuff about you, again, that's the reason why we invited you here. Uh, sitting in the room with you, I can see how the level of excitement and energy you have when you begin to talk about a topic, and hopefully it comes across in our so. conversation. I hope so, too. Judge Melody Stewart, we hope in a few months' time to be able to change that to Justice Melody oh, Stewart. Oh, that's sweet. I'd love to. I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to talk to our heartland in this broadcast. Oh, thank you so much. We've had a wonderful conversation okay. with you, and best of luck. Thank you very Everybody much. Everybody keep an eye out. Don't forget to vote. Don't forget and to don't vote. forget how important votes for the judiciary are in terms of affecting our daily lives and the lives of our children and grandchildren after us. And I understand on the ballot, I have to look way down near the bottom with no party designation to find your name. I am the last statewide race after you do the governor's race and then all the other executive offices alphabetically and then you'll get to the Supreme Court term that starts January 1 and I'm the Supreme Court's term that starts January 2. So I just tell people remember that judge with the, with the musical name. Melody is the perfect name Melody. to remember <laughs> and it's important to keep in mind the significance of voting for that position. Absolutely. And on election day don't tire out when you're at the polls. Have your coffee before you go and stick it out all the way through <laughs> and make sure you finish that ballot because the name on the bottom is going to be an important one. Thank you, Thank you Melanie. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll leave you today with this thought from Helen Keller. Although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of the overcoming of it. Thanks for listening. Be well. And we'll see you next time.